I don't know what I expected when we began this series of conversations about why dance matters. I didn't realise how personal they would become. Dance doesn't always seem central to our lives, but to our guests, even the non-dancers who work in totally different areas, dance gets to the heart of the things that matter to them most. I'm David Jays, and this is Why Dance Matters, a podcast from the Royal Academy of Dance about how dance impacts on people's lives. To close our first series, it seemed right to go into the RAD itself and meet its chief executive, Luke Rittner. Luke has led the RAD since 1999, after senior roles at organisations like the Arts Council, Bath Festival and Sotheby's. I don't think of chief execs as the kind of people who wear their heart on their sleeve, but as you'll hear, Luke isn't someone who keeps his emotions buttoned up behind the pinstripe. He has led the RAD for over two decades and is planning to retire from the Academy. But as he approaches the end of his time at the RAD, this probably wasn't the final lap he'd imagined, dealing with a pandemic and its fallout. One beacon on the horizon is the RAD's forthcoming move into a purpose-built new home in London's Battersea. I wonder how this time has made Luke reflect on dance, dance teaching, and its place in all our lives. So, Luke, thank you very much for joining us on the Why Dance Matters podcast. This is very kind of you. I'm just wondering, if someone had told you early in your career that you would spend over 20 years at the head of a dance organisation, would you have believed them? Uh, No. (laughs) Short. I wouldn't, because my first love and passion was theatre and not dance. So everything I thought about in terms of career was geared towards theatre. And when then did the arts first enter your life? Was this at school? Was this, you know, at home? Well, it was at, it was at home. And I can, I can sort of pinpoint a memory. I, I must have been five years old. I can remember playing with a little friend She's also still a friend, actually. And over their front door, there was a very heavy curtain on a wooden pole with rings. And we used to play opening and shutting that curtain and singing songs. And that is, I think, (laughs) where my obsession with theatre began. Oh, wow. It also then went on because in my my own bedroom at at home, I had a, it was a very old house and the window had a very deep window seat and the curtains drew in front of the window seat. And I moved on to doing performances on the window seat using the curtains as the the house tabs. And indeed, (laughs) there was one occasion when my... Mama was quite surprised to come across three 
ladies from the village going up our staircase. And when my mother asked them very politely where they were going upstairs in our house, they said that we're going to a performance. And um, so my mother followed them up and into my bedroom where I had removed all my bedroom furniture and had gathered every chair I could find in the house. And there were about 14 elderly ladies from the village who had read my advertisement in the post office saying there would be a performance at three o'clock that afternoon. Wow, I love that. What was the performance? Um, do you know, I actually can't remember, except I think it was a sort of um, collection of songs. <laughs> it wasn't the bard, that I can tell you. <laughs> That's fantastic, though. So the kind of the entrepreneurial spirit was there from the beginning. <laughs> it, it was In the impresario. Very, very early on, and, and, and also <laughs> moved into a, a full-scale circus as well in the garden. I was just passionate about performance and, and show business. Wow. And when you began a career in, I guess, arts management of various forms. Was was there a sort of a career path in your head or was that a kind of making it up as you, you went along sort of a, <laughs> a, a, a route? Well, if, if there is a career path, I can tell you there was no sort of clarity to what that path was going to be at all. I, I wanted to be an actor. I ran away from school and went to drama school, but discovered that I wasn't really going to be a very good actor. And a very wonderful tutor at the drama school said, I should broaden my horizons. And so I went on to do a um, stage management and technical course at Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And then from there, I became an assistant stage manager uh, back in my home city of Bath at the Theatre Royal in Bath. Wow. When you say you ran away from school, was it as dramatic as that? Were you just really ducking out of formal education? Yeah, no, I literally ran away. I was, uh, wow. I, I was sent off to boarding school at the age of, tender age of seven. It was never something I particularly enjoyed. Then I, I finally, it, it, <laughs> it took me until I was about 15 to pluck up the courage. I, I can't remember it pretty clearly. I, I just finally had had enough. And um, I packed my overnight suitcase, which always stayed under, under the beds in the dormitories. I headed off down the drive on a, a darkening November afternoon as the snow began to fall. <laughs> and I was heading along the main road to get to the nearest train station with no real plan beyond getting down to London. And um, of course, there wasn't a vehicle in sight. The snow was coming down quite heavily. Uh, and then I had a car and I got very excited and nervous. And I was hitching a lift and the car pulled up. So I was very excited and the door, passenger door opened and I climbed in and it was the headmaster driving. Of course, he had no idea I had run away. And he, he asked me where I was going, and I said home, and he said, no, you're not. So I was taken back to school. So it was, it was rather a, it, it was a great escape that didn't happen. <laughs> but you got out eventually. Uh, yes, I, I did. I, I gave my then poor, very recently widowed mama an ultimatum. 
And I said, you have to take me away. And uh, bless her heart, she did. So life got better after that. And I'm going to now bring you forward again, because after having then struggled to find the place where you fitted, in 1999, you find yourself at the head of a dance organisation, the RAD. And there, I guess it's not about the final product, something for an audience. It's not about a show or a performance. It's about the process. It's about thousands and thousands of dance teachers all across the world teaching dance every week to people of every age, every ability. When you arrived at the RAD, what did you make of dance teachers and their work? Well, well, oh my goodness, there's a question. Can I sort of take half a step backwards? Because in, in order to set the context, I had, after ASMing at the Theatre Royal, I spent nine years at the Bath Festival, and that was all about putting on shows, mainly music, nevertheless, always putting on shows. So that was terrific. But from then on, I became just a, a plain old bureaucrat, seven, eight years spent as head of the Arts Council. And I resigned from the Arts Council, a job which I absolutely adored, and found myself for the first time in my life with, without a job. I was then asked if I would go to Sotheby's, the auctioneers, in order to head up a new department of public affairs. I was a square pin in a round hole. I didn't hugely enjoy it, but I learnt a great deal. First time I'd ever worked in the commercial world. But I was really quite desperate to get back to something closer to the performing arts. I had been looking for a while, and I saw an advertisement for the CEO at the Royal Academy of Dance. I read the job spec, and I thought, it sort of is okay. I don't know that I've ever really heard of the Royal Academy of Dance. I'm not sure about it. But on the other hand, maybe it'll help me get back to the performing arts. So I applied, and I got the job. It took me slightly by surprise, because it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And my thought on my first day there was, this will be a stepping stone and I will be moving on to something else. Uh, it's rather awful to admit that now. <laughs> However, I couldn't have been more wrong gradually, and it didn't take very long. I became really quite, not just fascinated, but hugely enamoured of this extraordinary organisation which, as you have said, has all these thousands of teachers all over the world. And you've asked what I, what I thought. It was quite mystifying at the time. And it could be perhaps summed up, not so much what I thought, but what I was led to expect by a phone call I had when I knew I'd got the job from a then member of the board of the academy, who I knew quite well and I had known before I went to the academy. And she said, well, Luke, congratulations on getting the job. What do you think they want you to do? And I said, I think they would like me to bring the academy into the 20th century, as it was then. And she said, the 20th, darling? Try the 18th first. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think it was... Uh, 
quite old-fashioned at the time. There are probably some who think it is nowadays, but it's changed almost out of all recognition in the last 20 years. And what was the thing that hooked you? What was the thing that made you think, oh, yeah, this could be my home? Well, I think, first of all, uh, I think it was the ability to to actually make an impact. You know, it was an organisation that was large enough to be really interesting, but small enough to bring change about. And And I think there's nothing more debilitating than being in an organisation where you really cannot bring change about. I think the second was was really the people who work there and indeed the teachers who I began to meet just almost without exception, just really, really nice people, all of whom have a passion for dance and most of whom put dance and the business before themselves a lot of the time. You've travelled all over the world because, as I said, the, the RAD, it's in, I think, almost 90 countries and you've probably visited most of them. Is there anything that connects the RAD teachers in all of those places? Is there something that's in the DNA of a, an RAD dance teacher? I mean, I think the first thing that connects is the passion that people have for particularly classical ballet. I mean, it, it extends to all of dance, but there is something about classical ballet which gets pretty close to a religion. And I think that is an absolute thread that runs through the entire organisation and its, its members. There are very few, if indeed any of our members, who don't teach classical ballet. They may teach all other genres as well but most of them will tell you that classical ballet is their first love and it's a big organization there are loads of members you've got lots of colleagues but it's quite lonely leadership and you've had to see the rad through lots of little crises at least one major recession a global pandemic all of that and the buck always stops with you. So I'm just wondering how that feels. How do you cope with that? Gosh, I, I found it really, in a sense, difficult to answer the question. Yes, the buck does stop, but you, it can be lonely. But on the other hand, every leader uh, is part of a team. If you feel part of the team and you know you're at, at one with the team, then then the decisions... The decision-making is shared and is helped because the team is there to offer advice and help and support. So, And I've been amazingly lucky with particularly the senior team that I've worked with over the, the years at the academy. If you have a team that you trust and respect and get on with, then the job is made much, much, much easier. But I think just generally speaking... It is important always to try and stop that rising sense of panic that happens sometimes when a crisis hits. And certainly the last year through this pandemic, I would say has probably been 
almost been the toughest year of my entire career and far more emotional than I would ever have expected it to be had anyone said to me in advance, this is what's going to happen. I've always been struck, actually, Luke, by the way in which you do wear your heart on your sleeve. You're quite unabashed about that, and it's really lovely. And I would guess kind of unusual in, a, you know, a chief exec in a suit. It's not what you expect. Has, has that always been part of your makeup, to, to have a thought <laughs> or a feeling and, and express it straight away? Well, um, I, think, I think it has. I, I am quite an emotional person underneath if it's not immediately apparent. I remember my boss at Sotheby's sent me off on a 10-day very, very expensive total immersion course in Colorado to make me tougher and less pleasant to deal with. And of course, it is seen as a weakness generally to show emotion still, not quite as bad as it was in earlier times. But yes, I do feel very much part of the organisation I'm working for. And and I do tend to take it home with me. I don't have any hobbies. Uh, That's not to say I I hope that I'm sort of sitting at home working all the time, but it's always with you. and, And I cannot separate my personal life from my work life, really. I'm very, very passionate about what I do, and I always have been. I'm really pleased you haven't taken those Colorado lessons <laughs> too much to heart. What kind of things did they get you to do? Oh, my goodness, I cannot tell you. Well, it was... Uh, <laughs> it was... Um, well, we went out into the desert with, with in different groups and you had to be a group leader and you had to uh, save the group from possible nuclear attack and then we, <laughs> and we we had to scale rock faces and I was absolutely petrified and, and all sorts of, and all the time all the sessions we had in the um, the conference center there were psychiatrists teams of psychiatrists sitting behind one-way mirrors watching our every move and then analysing us at the end of each day. It was absolutely horrific. And then on the very last day, the very last session, I suppose there were 25 of us in the group, the chairs went from being in theatre style to a circle. Um, And on each of the chairs in this circle was placed a box of Kleenex tissues um, because apparently in this final session, all the participants always break down in tears having having sort of revealed themselves over the course of the 10 days. I had to start my little summing up by saying it was less usual for English people to, to burst into tears in front of, <laughs> in front of lots of people. And uh, that was why I hadn't had to open my box of Kleenex. It's one of the few occasions when I was expected to cry that I didn't. I'm always crying on other occasions. It was a, an interesting experience. It sounds completely balmy and yeah. not really what you want from an arts leader. So I'm I'm glad you didn't take that too much to heart. I, um, I didn't succumb. Yes. You, you mentioned this year, which has clearly been far more difficult than anyone was expecting. And it was full of 
projects that were really exciting to celebrate the RAD's centenary and which had to be postponed. But they're now starting up again, slowly, slowly. There's the, the flagship ballet competition, the Fontaine. There's um, an exhibition about the RAD's history at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And especially you're planning the move into the RAD's new global headquarters in Battersea in London. What will that home allow it to achieve? Our present headquarters, where we've been domiciled now for uh, for 50 odd years, has over the last 10, 12, 15 years become increasingly inadequate, not just for our own purposes, um, but when looking at, at some of the wonderful new dance buildings that have been put up in London in recent years, we just were, were failing uh, to, to even get near to matching them. So it became very clear a while ago that we would need to do something about this. And our first thought was, we love the building we're in. Let's see if we can make it fit for purpose for the next 20, 30 40 years. Cutting a, a longish story short, that investigation proved that the cost of doing that was going to be astronomical. It came at, at the, the point at which the world financial markets collapsed and uh, the board quite rightly thought this is not the moment to be raising many, many, many millions of pounds to revamp our headquarters. So I, I was tasked by the board to go out and find another site. The only conditions that were put on this was that, if possible, it should be in London, if possible, in the borough where we've been for 50 years, but absolutely it must be financially level level pegging. And, and I thought that last condition was would kibosh the entire thing. However, we were introduced to a developer who at the time had just bought a large site not very far from us. We negotiated uh, a deal whereby he took on our existing building and in return for that, he was to give us a new purpose-built headquarters. So that took care, if you like, of about 17 and a half million of a 20 million pound project, which was wonderful. And that meant that we had a, a relatively modest sum to raise. So on the financial side, that was all really good. In terms of, of facilities, we worked very hard on a brief, which would give us everything we could possibly want as an organization for the next 30, 40, 50 years. We will have seven full-size studios, all with the best possible flooring, with mirrors, with bars, with pianos, with sound systems, with air conditioning. In addition to the seven full-size studios, we will have a wonderful new library, a new archive facility. There will be lecture rooms, there will be study rooms, there will be a cafe, and at the heart of the building, there will be a new studio theatre seating just on 200 people. Um, so it, it really is going to be a, a state-of-the-art facility and quite unlike our present building which is sort of tucked away rather picturesquely behind a, a high wall and a, the side of a lovely cobbled courtyard we will be right out there on the main road with a 
large, extensive, glorious frontage. So we will not any longer be able to hide our light under a bushel. You, you are going to be part of the community, aren't you? I remember that the first time I went to the current building, getting really lost because you can't see it from the street. But this building is just is going to be in the heart of Battersea, isn't it? It is. And it's surrounded now by new buildings of, of all kinds. And the area to the west of the new site is all designated for redevelopment. So I think in the next 10, 15 years, it's going to become a real destination place, not just our building, but, but the surrounding area, which is, is very, very exciting indeed. And I know that the RAD has always been very strongly rooted in the local community. How are you hoping to develop that in the new building? Well, um, we, we have indeed. And obviously, over, over 50 years, we built links with the community. Indeed, it was the leader of the Wandsworth Council who put us together with the developer. So we have a lot to thank them for, and they've been hugely supportive of us. What I think this new, these new facilities are going to enable us to do is to have more space and better facilities, not just to do what we are currently doing, better, but to be able to open our doors much, much more to the local community. And indeed, also, not just the local community, but to developing our community work across London. I mean, we have one of the the largest community dance projects already, which we've been running for some 10 years now, Step Into Dance, in boroughs right away across uh, London. And we yes. will be able to expand on programmes like that and our Radiate programme, and as well as hopefully doing more with local community groups. And perhaps uh, in time, enabling local dance groups to take up residences with us, which would be very exciting. Oh, that, that is a nice idea. I like that. Luke, we've covered a lot of ground, um, but we have to end, sadly. Just, just before we do that, though, I must ask you, why does dance matter to you? Oh, my goodness. Where, where to begin? In a way, it's, uh, it's such an easy question to answer, and yet such a complex question to answer. And I think my answer, in a way, my answer applies to, to all the arts. Dance, obviously, is a crucially important one, but we live, uh, I suppose I can say this at my great age, in a period where I see less community and human-to-human -human cohesion than I've ever seen in my life before. And that in spite of all the efforts that are made to make us love one another. And I find it incredibly upsetting. I think the one thing that remains and will be even more important moving forward are the arts and in particular the the performing arts they are they are i think and i've said this so often before the oxygen of civilization anything that we can do to help young people be introduced to the arts 
and to appreciate and understand what the arts can do for them is worth doing. To me, that is not just the sign of civilization, but I think I think it's what prevents us just from becoming just the most awful society, really. And I think that dance teachers have such an incredibly important role to play. And dance, if we're homing in on dance, and yes, it's quite right that I should do so, um, you know, it has so many things. It has the health element to it. It has the artistic element to it. It has the ability to teach young people to feel confident in their bodies. It teaches them life skills that will be with them forever, whether or not they ever became professional dancers, which most of them never will. But these are incredibly important things. And if it makes just one young person a more civilized person, then it's worthwhile. That's wonderful, Luke. Thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's always moving to hear someone speak from the heart. Luke may not have expected to spend so much of his career engaged with dance, but it's clear that even non-dancers aren't immune to its emotive, life-changing appeal. I hope you've felt that appeal too during this series of conversations. Let me know. I'm at Mr David Jays on Twitter. The RAD is at RAD Headquarters. And our show notes have more information about the RAD's work and its plans for its new home. Please do subscribe and like the podcast so that it makes its way to other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. If you subscribe, then the new episodes in our next season, launching in autumn 2021, will land in your feed automatically, as light as a prima ballerina. We hope the new season will be full of unexpected insights, personal revelations and dance-based inspiration. Our guest today was Luke Rittner. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Hayley Izzard, Celia Moran and Melanie Murphy. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And the chief executive of our little podcast world is our peerless producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you very soon. Hold up. 